Today's podcast is brought to you by Isoway Sports, the sports range for athletes looking for supplements that are free from all artificial colours, flavours, sweeteners and added fructose. Intense physical training programs place significantly higher nutritional demands on sports people, and Isoway Sports are committed to providing pure nutritional ingredients that are truly complementary to a healthy, active lifestyle. You can visit isoasports.com.au for more information. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me in the studio today is Natalie Burke. Natalie is a holistic dietitian and nutritionist, author, podcaster, speaker and fitness instructor. She's part of the practitioner support team at Bioceuticals and runs Health by Whole Foods, a nutritional consulting business with a clinical focus on thyroid dysfunction, HP-axis dysregulation or adrenal fatigue and gut health. Nat is passionate about helping women build a healthy relationship with food and their body. She achieves lasting results with her clients using whole food nutrition, functional medicine and holistic lifestyle advice. You can catch her fortnightly on the Holistic Nutritionists podcast with fun and quirky interviews that aim to dispel nutrition myths and guide listeners on a balanced approach to health. Her ebook, Healing Digestive Discomfort, is an industry-leading guide with accessible guidance for anyone looking to start improving their gut health. Welcome, Nat, to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. But I've got to say, CrossFit is alien to me. I don't even know what it is. What exactly is CrossFit? So the best way to describe CrossFit is that it is constantly varied functional movements performed at high intensity. So it's incorporating things like gymnastics, um, Olympic weightlifting, uh, running, rowing, swimming in some cases when you get to the higher levels. And it's very functional and varied. So what, what therefore are the benefits of CrossFit? So there are a few benefits and some of those benefits are relating to the type of exercise that it is. So we know that, you know, high intensity interval training, for example, has its benefits in terms of improving um, insulin sensitivity and also it's a very um, efficient way of exercising. So when people are very time poor, it's a great idea to use high intensity um, training to get, I guess, the maximum benefit for your time spent in the gym. Another benefit would be that there's often a very big focus on performance as opposed to aesthetics. So when you're going into a CrossFit gym, generally speaking, the focus is on, hey, what can you do as opposed to what do you look like? And I think that can be really beneficial, particularly for females who are trying to escape that pressure of a conventional gym where everyone's looking at everyone and there's mirrors everywhere. And then the last benefit that I would probably say is that there's a big community feel in most CrossFit gyms. So, you know, that's obviously a generalisation. It might not be the same for every single place that you go. But generally speaking, you're walking into a big family and most people, um, you know, know each other's name. They know name. the journey. Yeah, that's it. I guess my memory is going back to something that Dr. Michael Mosley did when he was checking for prediabetes. And there was a researcher, and oh, forgive me, all I remember is his name, is his um, accent, his Scottish accent. Mm. But um, is this the same as HIIT therapy or high intensity interval training or is there va- marked differences? 
I'd say that high intensity interval training is a component of CrossFit, but it's not all of what encompasses CrossFit. Right. So CrossFit is hit and more. Yes. Gotcha. And so when you're talking about looking at insulin sensitivity and improving that, is this relevant for those people that are overweight, have metabolic syndrome and are starting out in a gym? Or is this really best suited for somebody that has already gotten used to their body being active in a gym situation? So I think like with most exercises, you can grade um, the exercises and the intensity. So if done with a you know qualified CrossFit coach that understands exercise and understands the human body, which a lot of good CrossFit coaches out there will, yep. then all movements in CrossFit and all intensities can be adjusted to that person. So I think it is for that, that type of person, you don't necessarily have to be trained in order to start a journey in CrossFit. And so therefore, what do you see as the biggest downfalls? I remember looking into this sort of controversy about, you know, the the positives and the negatives. I remember a story from ages ago about a, um, a guy that's now a paraplegic because of what he did at CrossFit. But I get that, you know, the media will sensationalize something and target something. It could be something that he did incorrectly, whereas others didn't. What's the situation here with regards to positives and negatives and yeah. injuries and all that sort of thing? So on the injury front, I'd say that anything done under fatigue or when someone's under-recovered is asking for trouble mm-hmm. and that could be in any sport. So I don't think that that's exclusive to CrossFit and I think that the context matters, the context of the person and the context in which the exercise is being done. So more so the detrimental or I guess the negatives of CrossFit that I see most often is that it's a very highly stressful form of exercise. And when you put someone in a highly stressful form of exercise on a daily basis, which a lot of people are doing CrossFit, you know, five days a week as their Uh daily exercise. Yep. And they also have a full-time job, you know, they've got a family, you're kind of just putting one stress on top of another. So in that regard, it can become just another stress as opposed to a beneficial stress. And particularly when people aren't putting the effort into recovery, into sleep, into nutrition. um, and, And that's when I see it becoming a problem. I also see it becoming quite a problem in, in females. So Often what happens is they will be doing CrossFit sometimes for the purpose of weight loss, sometimes just for the purpose of, you know, an activity of choice, but they tend to overtrain. So we start to see problems with their periods, with their cycles Mm. becoming irregular or disappearing altogether. And we also see problems with um, with cortisol. So a lot of people will start developing um, th- that typical ad- adrenal fatigue, and I'm, I'm quoting in air marks there, adrenal fatigue. And Thank you. Yes, they'll be waking <laughs> up at, you know, 2am, unable to sleep. They'll have, you know, energy fluctuations throughout the day. They'll often find it really difficult to lose weight despite the amount of training they're doing. And because of that, they'll start to train more because, you know, it, the answer we're always given is, you know, more is more is more and it's better, whereas often it's less is more. First things, I'm so glad you said adrenal fatigue <laughs> yes. in, in in quotation marks, because, you know, the more we learn about this, we really should be saying the HPA axis or HPA axis. So, um, and it's very often the brain that has the volumetric changes in Mm. this, um, when people are stressed. So we're talking about chronic stress and you, you mentioned cortisol upset. We're not just talking about reductions in fat. So therefore they can't have a period. We're talking about 
stressful interruptions to their cycle yeah. with regards to women. Exactly. So do they therefore tend to get the associated symptoms of stress, which is, you know, the breast tenderness and things like that related to prolactin, where they haven't got the dopamine, that sort of prolactin inhibiting hormone, quote unquote, the do- dopamine yeah. action? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some, some people do. It depends how far down the road they are. Mm. Often probably the first sign physically that I see a lot is that kind of um, storage of fat around the midsection. So, that's a very kind of key indicator to me. And I'm not taking notice of it because of, you know, aesthetic reasons, but it's more of a red flag that, hey, this person is probably overtraining because I know that a lot of them are not eating enough to cause weight gain. What's happening is that in most situations, they're under fueling for the amount of exercise that they're doing Mm. and they're not putting any effort into recovery. What sort of energy system is imbalanced here? What, and I guess we can ask what sort of energy system is being used in CrossFit mm. when, it's, when it's being utilised properly? Yeah. So I would say majority of CrossFit uses the glycolytic energy system. So we're talking here about using glycogen and glucose for energy during these workouts. And, you know, there is to some extent when you get to the longer, um, longer workouts in CrossFit, you are using, um, you can be using fat for fuel, but for the most part, you're using glucose and, and stored uh, and glycogen. So stored glucose for those sessions. And I guess the thing to point out here is that most people in CrossFit communities are following low-carb diets because that is essentially where the paleo diet was popularized. Ah, and okay. that, um, although paleo does definitely, like, definitely doesn't have to be low-carb, often people tend to just do that um, you know, by mistake mm. sometimes. Mm. And therefore it's, it's a mismatch between the type of movement, the type of exercise they're doing and the type of fuel they're using to, to, I guess, fuel their sessions. So what therefore should they be eating if they're going to do it right? Yeah. So there needs to be a consideration in terms of both carbohydrate intake and also protein intake. And With carbohydrates, it's quite difficult to give a specific number because as I'm sure everyone listening can appreciate, we are all very individual. So to give practitioners that are listening something to take away from this, I would say that for most of my female, um, I guess, gym junkies or weekend warriors, Mm. I would... I wouldn't allow them to go under 150 grams of carbohydrates per day. And often they will be a little bit higher than that. And for males, I would say probably more up to that 250 to 300 gram mark per day. And in terms of protein intake, my my recommendation or what I most of my clients are on are something between 1.8 grams um, to kind of 2.5 grams per kilogram um, per day. Now you'll notice that that is quite significantly higher than the, um, I guess, recommended daily intake, which is 0.8 grams per kilo per day. However, you have to remember that that, that figure is based on sedentary people that aren't putting their body under a lot of stress, who aren't looking to maintain lean muscle mass or build lean muscle mass Mm. and don't have that demand on them. So can I ask here, this is something that I'm constantly confused about, and that is basically the dietary advice Mm. that we're often given, and it changes, it vacillates. Is it paleo? Is it Mediterranean? You know, you've got the DASH diet, you've got high protein, high carb, what, you know, the newest 
guidelines that have come out is basically, um, with regards to cardiovascular health at least, was that carbs really are something that we need to be careful of and that fat is really inconsequential. Um, same with protein. It's really the carbs that we need to be monitoring. However, I'm also very mindful that there are certain amino acids which are glycogenic. I think the key here is individualization and a match from what someone's lifestyle is like, what their current metabolic condition is like and their intake. So would I tell someone who has, you know, metabolic syndrome and is sedentary to be consuming large amounts of carbohydrates? Absolutely not. That would be contraindicated. But for someone who's doing CrossFit, you know, four to six days a week is relatively healthy and doesn't have metabolic syndrome, then it would be doing them a disfavour and doing their health a disfavour to say you should eliminate carbohydrates because you're placing another additional stress on the body when they're already engaging in stressful exercise and who doesn't have you know, some kind of lifestyle stress at the moment as well. What mistakes do you feel people make when it comes to fueling their body? for this activity? Yeah. So number one would be under eating, particularly in females, because a lot of people come into CrossFit with the goal of weight loss um, or body composition changes. And we're constantly fed that message that we need to exercise more and eat less. And often that's taken to the extreme. So I will see females coming into the gym, doing CrossFit five days a week and eating 1,200 to 1,500 calories a day, which is drastically under what they would require. So I would suspect that those people would need closer to 1,800 to 2,000 calories a day, even given their goals of, of weight loss, given how much exercise, high intensity exercise that they're doing. And when you're under eating and over exercising, you're putting your body into a, a bit of a starvation mode and mm. they're going to want to hold on to every single calorie they can because, you know, it's under threat. And as females, we are here to reproduce and we are here to survive to reproduce. So your body is absolutely going to become as efficient as it can at storing calories and, and preserving them. And so that's probably mistake number one that I see. It doesn't happen as much in males because they're much less concerned with calorie intake. Um, the second thing I would say is low-carb diets in CrossFit is absolutely a huge problem and both intentionally and unintentionally. Right. So intentionally in that we're all fed the message, as you've mentioned, that, hey, carbs are bad, you shouldn't be having any if you want to change your body composition or if you want to be healthy. And so that's taken from a, a generalised statement and put into a not-so-general context of, mm. of high-intensity exercise on a daily basis, and you're seeing a mismatch there as well. You know what? Thank you for pointing that out to me because it's something that we, we say something as health professionals. I just said it. And yet the word that came out of my mouth was carbs is something we need to watch. The inference might be no carbs or extremely low carbs rather than being cautious of too much carbs. Yeah. So this is a real balancing act, isn't it? it is. And I guess when you're mentioning these figures of calories and, and, you know, weights of certain foods, grams per kilogram, things like that, how do we translate that into meal preparation into practical aspects of, I should have this half of my plate as veggies, that quarter of my plate, and the plate should be X amount 
you know, yep. centimetres wide, not three feet wide, <laughs> which is my big problem. I love my food. I love healthy food, but too much of it. So there's a few different strategies. And I'd say that probably one strategy that is beneficial but needs to be, I guess, delivered with caution is initially when you're educating someone on how to fuel for their lifestyle in terms of exercise, it can be beneficial to get them to weigh and measure their food and count the calories or you do it for them so that they get a visual for themselves of what it looks like. Right. However, there is a big however there because the people that CrossFit attracts are the people generally, I'm talking about females here, that are quite type A personalities. (laughs) We have a lot of previous eating disorders or a lot of obsessed with food type personalities that come here. Mm -hmm. And so you need to be cautious with how you educate them to do that. So my prescription to most people is do this for, either let me do it and I won't give you the numbers. I will just tell you how much, um, or get them to do it for a few days so that they get a visual and then you encourage them not to weigh and measure their food, but to just trust that they're not going to be that wrong. Right. The problem with telling people, hey, just eat as much as you're hung- hungry for in this context is that often you see in females who are doing a lot of high intensity exercise, either they have a really high appetite and they find it hard to get satiated or you see a suppression of the appetite and um, or they've already been eating such low calories and low amounts of food that to eat more just seems really anxiety provoking for them unless they've been given, you know, permission, again, in inverted commas, to have more food. So you have to re-educate them on what their plate as an individual should look like. And then from there, make sure that you follow through with them so that they're not becoming really neurotic around food and weighing and and measuring it all of the time. But I'd be lying if I said I never use it as a tool to get them to the place where they're supposed to be. That's a really responsible point you make. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I have seen issues. I know of issues where women have been given diabolically wrong advice from gyms from instructors, I'm thinking of an example here in point, um, set this person down a path of a horrid eating disorder. And it, it it's just a travesty that people don't understand this. So I'm so glad that you make the points of a under eating can cause a retention of fat. Yeah. That's number one, particularly in the face of high intensity, stressful exercise, but two, that you use this sort of thing as a tool for insight so that they can actually get themselves well rather than keeping themselves sick. My history is that I have I had a almost a decade long eating disorder. So I know So and, you know. Yeah, and I and I know that I know the insights of how they think. So for certain people I wouldn't give that prescription. I wouldn't get them to weigh and measure their food at all. I'd be looking out for their health first and not giving them any insight to the fact that I'm getting them to eat more. I would just be giving them, hey, have a palm size of protein, have, you know, half your plate with veggies and have a couple of tablespoons of fat and, you know, half a cup of starchy vegetables, for example, to get them away from weighing and measuring and being neurotic. Um, Because the last thing you want to do is encourage more of that behavior. But there is a place for it. And it just requires some intuition on the practitioner's part as to the cost, um, you know, I guess the cost versus benefit of using that tool 
And maybe it's a case of I'm not going to use it initially, but I might use it a bit down the track when I see this person starts to become more comfortable with eating a bit more. And it's not always necessary. So if someone's at the beginning of their journey, if you make little changes, you'll often see big changes. Whereas it's different if you've got someone who's been training for multiple years and, and watching what they eat and you're trying to get changes happening, then then yes, sometimes there requires a bit more attention to detail. Yeah. What about with eating um, regarding timing of intake of certain nutrients? Yes. Is that important? Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked that. So where it comes into importance is particularly with carbohydrates. So after you exercise is probably the best time to saturate most of your carbohydrate intake, particularly if you've Uh got someone who has some kind of metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance, PCOS, for example. So the reason why that is, is because after exercise, your body is essentially primed to absorb those glucose, those carbohydrates and put them into um, your muscles and liver as glycogen. So there's an increase in the expression of GLUT4 receptors, um, which helps with that accelerated glucose uptake. There's also an increase in the expression of glycogen synthase. So there's an accelerated Um, I guess, form of glycogen storage happening as well. The reason why that's beneficial is because we want that glucose to be stored in the muscles and the liver for the next time they exercise. What we're trying to do is avoid it being stored as as fat, essentially. Yeah. Is there any way to preferentially store glucose in the muscle rather than the liver? So I would say the best way is actually to make sure that post-workout you're using glucose as opposed to fructose as your um, carbohydrate source because fructose will preferentially be stored as liver glycogen, whereas glucose is going to be stored in the muscles um, first and foremost. So, you know, using things like um, sweet potato, white rice, um, you can also use, you can use powdered supplements in terms of like dextrose. Uh, I wouldn't use that for just someone who's exercising a few days a week and looking for that, um, I guess, glycogen replenishation. I would more use that in athletes at higher levels or people right. really looking for performance goals. Yep. I prefer to focus on whole food like sweet potato, you know, rice, those kind of things when it's just your everyday weekend warrior. So you mentioned supplements and protein powders there. Is there a place for protein powders and sports supplements and how far do you go down that track? And, you know, I guess, forgive me for this label here, but I've got that sort of meathead label in my mind versus, you know, the responsible user of supplements who uses judicious supplementation to add a little bit, but it's always food. Um, You know, I've seen both. Yeah, absolutely. How do you wend your way? And, and I guess what benefits do you get when you choose one over the other? Yeah. And look, as as a foodie, as a whole food nutritionist, I will always vouch for food as fuel first, but I'd be lying if I said I never used supplements or that I didn't think that there was a place for them. Mm-hmm. So I would say, let's start off with the protein powder. I do think that that can be really beneficial, particularly post-workout for a few reasons. It's obviously a really convenient source of protein, particularly when you're using whey protein isolate. It's getting into the into the muscles very quickly, which is important for recovery. And also, as I mentioned, convenience. So, you know, not a lot of people are going to be taking chicken and sweet potato to the gym and sit down and eat it after they train. 
you're going to get more people being compliant with taking a protein powder and, you know, some coconut water, for example, as some carbohydrate stores to have after their training. And generally speaking, the, the faster you can get that protein and carbohydrate combination in after training, the more ideal it is in terms of recovery. I wouldn't encourage someone to get neurotic about it, but it can be a benefit if you're struggling with recovery from your workouts. I'm so glad you mentioned coconut water. And I guess coconut water is different from coconut um, oils. Yes. I don't tend to use them post-workout. I am a fan of coconut oil, but in the context of post-workout, no, because our primary goal here is to replenish glycogen stores and we and, need carbs to do that. And is this one of the reasons you... the that you use the the whey protein concentrate isolate whatever um, because you get a high amount of those glycogenic amino acids yeah Is correct that why? correct and it's also quite broken down so you're going to get that rapid absorption right, right so I don't use protein powders for everyone if someone's training a few days a week they're just doing it for general health reasons um, or even if they have weight loss goals generally I'll just use whole food. The other context, though, that I would use a protein powder in is if someone is struggling to meet their protein requirements, mm. because you have to, again, analyze everything as a cost-benefit analysis. Yes. Is whole food better in general? Absolutely. Absolutely. But is someone not meeting their protein requirements going to be beneficial to them? No. And in that case, you're more... Uh, you're going to get more out of giving them a protein powder supplement. So how do you make that choice? How do you make that decision to say, listen, it's time we add in a supplement here? So What's I'll, the tipping point? Yeah, I'll give them a chance to see how they go with just eating whole foods mm. and, you know, get them to keep a food diary or if they have a really good memory, just hope that they can <laughs> give that. Ah, uh, yes, the patient memory thing. <laughs> That's it. It's a, mm. bit, a bit of a, <laughs> a slippery slope. Yeah. Uh, and I would calculate for myself how much protein they're getting. If I see that they're quite under eating protein, then that's when I would make the suggestion. Or if they're giving me the feedback of, oh, you know, I just couldn't meet, I couldn't get my post-workout meal in or I was waiting two hours till I got to work, then I'd say, hey, let's try a protein powder, see how you feel, see how you perform, see how you recover and, and go from there. Do you see any problems from taking supplements? Like have you have you seen it in patients where you've made that decision to instigate the use of protein powders and you've actually had a backflip on their health? Like for instance, you know, weight gain, fat gain rather than um, lean muscle mass. Yeah, kind of. So it depends. The most common thing I see is if someone's using that protein powder outside of that post-workout window, right. we know that whey protein isolate can actually um, cause a spike in insulin, which we obviously we don't want outside the context of that post-workout window if someone's goal is to lose weight yeah. or to have balanced blood sugar. So in that regard, I do. Or if people just take it upon themselves to um, replace most of their whole food protein sources with the protein powder and go down the green smoothie bandwagon and just have them for breakfast, lunch and dinner, then again, that's that's a problem because it is much better to eat your food than it is to drink it, particularly when it comes to weight loss. Absolutely. With regards to the problems of CrossFit, I mean, as I said at the beginning, there's a lot of controversy with tr CrossFit. I, I remember some guy, you know, being a paraplegic. I remember there's multiple instances in the media. However, I get that the media will tend to sensationalise an issue and pick on something without looking at the, the broad context. 
What's the reality of the problems or the injuries regarding CrossFit? How are they encountered? And what's their relevance when you place them in with other sports like football, for instance, high contact sports? Yeah. So when you're looking at um, comparing them to other sports, they really it, the injuries really don't come out that much higher. Oh, okay. And you really have to consider that how someone is performing that movement and the context of their recovery when they're going into that is going to come into play. And also, are they being coached right? Are they performing the movements right? I think I do think that one downfall of, of CrossFit can be when you get to higher levels or more competitive CrossFit, mm. where you're seeing complex movements like Olympic lifting being performed at very fast rates and high intensity, then obviously the margin for error is much larger mm. when you're doing something that's, you know, neurologically complex to complete and you're trying to do it under fatigue at a really fast pace and you've got the pressure of trying to win something, then yes, I do think that that can be a problem. But when you're coached correctly in how to execute a movement properly, when you're sensible in the volume of training you're doing in terms of the context of your lifestyle then I think that it's no more risky, so to speak, than any other sport that you engage in. Is one of the important factors how people compare themselves? They want to be like their mate who's, you know, twice the size across their shoulders, yep. you know, and they, they want to do that weight rather than being their own best. Yes, definitely. How do you modulate that? How do you pull them back and say, woo, this is about you, not him? Yeah, look, I think that's a bit of a, um, a relationship between the coach and the athlete uh -huh. or you know, gym goer that needs to be developed and any good CrossFit coach will pick up poor form and say, hey, you know, you're doing it incorrectly. Let's drop the weight and perform the movement again and get it done right. Because essentially a, a movement performed correctly is going to be an efficient movement. And I think, you know, having that conversation with someone is important about knowing their limits and just pushing their limits, not comparing themselves to the person next to them. The other point that I'd really like to make in terms of when CrossFit is a bad idea is if you've got a lot of stress in your life, if you have come off the back of any kind of significant stress, whether that be, um, you know, loss of a loved one, a highly stressful work, work um, situation, anything like that, or you've, you know, just been, could just come off um, being pregnant or something like that, then engaging in really highly stressful activity isn't the best way to go. So Con uh, convalescence yeah. as well, recovering from an illness. Yes, mm. absolutely. So it needs, CrossFit can be extremely beneficial, both from a social point of view and also from a physiological point of view, if it's done in the right way by the right person yep. in the right stage of their life. What about things like agility, flexibility, range of motion, rather than um, moving through one or a couple of planes of motion? I guess what's going through my mind here is things like a deadlift or a snatch and grab versus dancing, gymnastics, stretching. Yep. How do you incorporate this full range of motion and flexibility into, um, you know, I guess to look after their joints in the long run? Yeah. Well, gymnastics is a, is a component of CrossFit and they often use gymnastics in most workouts, like uh, there'll be a gymnastics component. Right. There's also an encouragement to CrossFitters to stretch and mobilise, foam roll, make sure they're doing those kind of mobility movements. So again, though, 
That's that's the advice given by CrossFit coaches, whether that's being done by time poor people or whether they're just going into the gym, smashing themselves and going home is their responsibility. So educating them on the importance of that and also the importance of, of massage, of, you know, chiropractic work, of, of sleep, of recovery, all those kind of things need to be communicated and emphasised. Do CrossFit coaches teach um, gym goers about the importance of all of these other components? I would say some do and I would say some don't. Right. So what, I guess, you know, we're talking about a CrossFit coach. How does one become a CrossFit coach and what are they coached on? So there is different levels of CrossFit coaching. So I can't remember how many levels there are, but it is a separate qualification. It's not just like, it's it's separate to becoming a personal trainer, for Mm. example. You can become a a CrossFit coach without doing personal training. Um, And there are, as I mentioned, different levels. So that's how you kind of become a CrossFit coach. And I think what they are, what they are trained on, what they're educated on is how to execute the movements of CrossFit correctly. So somebody going into a gym first time, they want to do CrossFit. How do they know? How can they pick that that coach is good, bad, trained, certain level? What sort of questions should they be asking, you know, to find out, I guess, anybody who's going to lead them through their health? Yeah. Any good CrossFit gym will have a fundamentals program. So that's essentially a series of classes that are usually either individual or in small groups that coach people through the different movements because it's really hard to learn how to do a snatch when you're just standing in a huge class of people who've got heaps of weight on the bar and and you've got no idea how they even got it above their head. Injuries plus. Yeah, (laughs) you need to be shown. So the first thing to look for is that they have a fundamentals program. Another thing would obviously be that they have a CrossFit qualification. And then to be honest, the other things is just to give it some time and see is there an emphasis on, or is there at least a focus on recovery, on stretching, on mobility, or is it just go in, smash yourself, go home? If it's go in, smash yourself, go home, leave. Yeah. You, well, Don't you, come you, back. You're going to head down that road yeah. of being in one of those papers that was negative for CrossFit. Yes. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So for people who want to get into CrossFit, obviously they've got to learn more about what it entails. What sort of resources, apart from, I've got to say, please contact yourself, um, (laughs) to lead them through responsibly. And I would say, obviously, people with any sort of hint of eating disorder, both the patient who has that and any practitioner looking after them have got to be mindful of those particular issues facing that sort of patient, that sort of person. But for the general population, where can they get good resources? Where can they start? It's a bit of a minefield, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> you can head to Google and you'll get so many hits, it's not funny. But mm-hmm. cross- What are your favourites? So, look, my favourites are probably, in terms of general information about what it entails, CrossFit.com is is where the information on what it is yeah. is contained. Yep. But I don't think that anything beats going in and talking to your lo- local CrossFit, um, I guess, place or coach and just having a discussion about how they, how appropriate it is for them in that context. And, you know, I guess there is a bit of a risk in who you talk to and you won't know until you have that conversation. But I do think that going in and trying it and seeing how you feel is, is a good idea and having a chat to, um, to CrossFit coaches or just people that do CrossFit who have been doing it for a long time and can give you a bit of background into what trouble they've run into or what are the benefits. So it's it's all about giving it a go and being honest with yourself in terms of how you respond. Natalie, thank you so much for taking us through the varied points of CrossFit. And 
indeed putting them in a responsible focus because there's so many people, as you have said, that do it improperly. They, they gauge themselves wrongly. They have inappropriate advice. I'm so glad that you raised that responsible advice with eating disorders and for taking us through how to really lead somebody down CrossFit for better health rather than just, you know, as you say, smashing themselves in the gym. Thanks very much for joining us on FX Medicine. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Registrations are now open for the joint AMA Australian and New Zealand Conference and Retreat to be held from April the 11th to 15th in Auckland, New Zealand, 2018. To tell us more, we have AMA President Dr Penny Caldicott on the line. How are you, Penny? I'm great. Thank you, Andrew. Now, tell us who'll be speaking at the AMA conference and what will delegates take away? So this conference is Personalised Medicine, the New Healthcare Revolution, and we've got a, a wonderful lot of speakers, beginning with Dr Bruce Lipton, who's going to be talking about new biology, new medicine, and evolution in healthcare. We've got Denise Fonesse, who's going to talk about the clinical application of nutrigenomics, epigenetics, and personalised medicine in Australia and New Zealand, and also going to give us the, the epigenetics 101. We've got um, Matt Ryman, who's going to be talking in detail about biotypology, Justin Sinclair, who's going to be speaking about the ethnopharmacology of cannabis, Neolithic to now. We've got Sue Gray and Tori Catherwood, uh, two New Zealanders, a lawyer and a medical student who are going to be speaking about medical marijuana. We've got Professor Julie Rutledge talking about serum nutrient levels and are they important in predicting benefits from nutritional therapies. Lawrence Katsaris, who's speaking about the microbiome, which is, he says is the forgotten genome in personalised medicine. We've got Nicole Bilschmer and Carolyn Ladowski, Epigenetics and Environmental Toxins. Genetics loads a gun, the environment pulls the trigger. We've got Professor Stephen Myers, whose talk is yet to be arranged, but always great value. Carolyn E is Dr. Carolyn E was going to speak about the freedom fighters for integrative medicine. Um, in her, she's got a couple of really key positions in Australia in integrative medicine. And then we've got two workshop sessions, one on advocacy for doctors and one on working together. So what does it look like? What kind of experiences can we have working together with other practitioners? What are the models and the referral letter templates that um, AIM has been generating for communication between practitioners and doctors? Now, the conference runs from the 14th to the 15th of April. There's also the retreat, which runs from the 11th to the 13th of April. Tell us a little bit about that, Penny. This is going to be a fantastic experiential lifestyle medicine retreat and it's going to be on Waiheke Island for two days and your phenotype is going to be measured on the afternoon of the first day and you get to live this retreat according to your phenotype with a chef that's going to cook every meal for you individually. Um, if you don't understand all about the phenotype that's fine because you can go on our website where there's an extended explanation and information about this and you can always contact us as well if you've got some more questions. Sounds fantastic. How can we register for tickets? You can go straight to our website which is aima.ph360.me. You can register for tickets there. There's extended information and you can contact us if you need more information. I'd urge all natural health practitioners to attend. It promises to be a great event. Thank you, Andrew.